everyone. Thank you for joining us for what I hope will be an interesting and informative discussion around some of the latest data in rheumatology. My name is Professor Peter Nash from Griffith University in beautiful downtown Brisbane. And today I'm delighted to be joined by Dr. Andreas Kirschbaumer, close colleague and friend, the Division of Rheumatology, Department of Internal Medicine, Medical University of Vienna in Austria. And today we're going to talk about the EULA recommendations that have recently been updated, meeting in Zurich in May of this year, for the management of psoriatic arthritis. And we thought we'd interview Andreas because he has been pivotal in doing the systematic literature review that led to the update and any changes in the recommendations of the management of PSA 2023. So the authors had a steering group with uh, Laurie Gossick, Joseph Smolin, Andreas, Ricardo Ferreira, Heidi Bertheson, Xenophon Barliarkos, Daniel Alataha, Dennis McGonagall, Desiree van der Heide, Ian McInnes, Bente Esbenson, Kevin Winthrop, and Wolf Henning Bernker, which covered dermatology, it covered patients, it covered uh, rheumatologists, it covered rheumatology nurses, and then there was a large task force from many countries all over the world, including <clears throat> input from hematology, from uh, gastroenterology, dermatology, rheumatology, and patients as well. So welcome, Andreas, and thank you very much for joining us. And I wonder if you could just introduce yourself a little and tell the audience a little bit about yourself and about what your interests are as far as research and PSA and recommendations for EULA in particular. Thank you, Peter. Thank you for having me. Thank you for the invitation. Um, I am working as a rheumatologist right now um, for about eight years and um, on started my PhD in 2016 at um, Joseph Smolin and Dalina Letaha's um, department. And I am mainly interested in doing clinical research where we look at effects of clinical studies, but not on how um, so how our outcomes changed or modified through um, study effects. This is my main research interest, how our placebo response is driven and how our um, study results influenced by other factors that are not drug related or per se drug related. And I um, was lucky to be invited to do the PSA and RA management recommendation SLRs. And I did for 2019, in 2019, I did that for PSA um, as well. And I had the honor to do it again in for the 2022 update. And so um, I did the whole, looked at the whole literature. We went through Let's all the data. Let's talk about that. Yeah. What does an SLR entail? What do you have to do for an SLR? And do you do it as a group or by yourself? So um, you, as a fellow, you actually work alone or with another fellow and um, actually look at the evidence that has been published since the last update. This was in 2019. So you start with a database search and look, screen all the articles that were published at first then select the articles that were predefined as being relevant to the update. And as you have defined them, you um, start data extraction and get the most important information or the important information out and present it to the steering group. And in the end, the steering group then decides 
how this um, influences the management recommendations that there already are um, present and if they need changes based on the evidence published. And how do you know that you're not missing important articles? How do you do such an extensive search? So um, this is missing important, if you miss important articles, that would be a, a problem. So you get a methodologist and the co-methodologist who assist you um, and look over the screening results as well. We do duplicate screenings, for example. Um, we did a duplicate screening as well for this, where you do parts of the um, article screening is done by a separate person um, for certain amount of articles and if and you look for a high above 90 percent agreement and if there are disagreements you need to discuss it okay and what were your predefined um outcomes and goal and trial designs that you said these are in and these are out so we did two different definitions the first one was for efficacy and the second one was for safety so these are two separate searches for efficacy, you look, we look only for randomized controlled trials. And we're not interested in court studies. It was really about randomized studies um, that were published investigating drugs. And it was important that these trials have a comparator group. So we did not look, for example, at long-term extension studies because you have no comparator to compare efficacy against anything. Um, so placebo or active controlled trials are of main interest here. There are also tapering studies that were of interest. And um, here also, again, uh, control arm is important. For safety, um, we do look at registry and, um, and cohort study data, case control studies, all, all that's informative regarding safety outcomes. And the, the safety outcomes need to be um, reported adequately. And you remember to give us an idea of how many articles you found and how many you ended up with. So um, this, and the, we started up um, with about 8,000 articles to screen. And in the end, we ended with, um, so we're, there were 38 studies for efficacy and 24 for safety. So we looked also at long-term extension studies, for example, for safety. We did not look for them. We, we did not investigate them for efficacy. Um, we, in, we, but we took in the safety results of the randomized controlled trials into the safety results and discussed it. So this, there is a certain overlap between the results. And, and how do you go about culling them? How do, what's the method for culling the trials? If it doesn't fit that criteria, you mm -hmm. both agree and it goes out? Mm -hmm. Exactly. So you, um, the, you get predefined criteria, for example, a comparator group. For example, you need to have a certain duration, a certain size of patients included. Um, and if this, this is predefined, and you investigate each article one after the other. You do a abstract screening first, where you um, try to identify potentially relevant articles, um, which is kind of a um, not that granular search. But then you do a full um, full article review, where you then end up with two hundred art two hundred articles uh, or one hundred fifty articles, where you go into detail, where you really look at sample size. Um, the methods used, the comparator arms, are the outcomes adequately reported? And in the end, you end up with a certain amount of studies. You discuss if there are any, if you're, if I was not sure on um, any decisions, I asked Lorgosek or Ricardo um, regarding their opinion. Okay. And so can you talk a little bit about the results of that SLR? So I think the main results of the SLR um, were that there were quite some drugs which were um, 
public where the study results were published after the last update, um, which was on Guzelcumab, on Upadacitinib, and recent Kizumab. And um, here we got a lot of studies available, but we also get head-to-head um, -head studies. Spirit head-to-head -head was published and included afterwards. And we also get um, other strategic trials which investigated um, BDMARC treatment and certain, um, for example, concomitant treatments with conventional synthetic DMARTs um, with or without conventional synthetic DMARTs or on top of adalimumab to add methotrexate, increase the dose, or um, taper the methotrexate treatment. And then there were, um, we now get more and more tapering studies, studies that show that it's possible to taper treatment in PSA if patients are in remission. Um, so this is possible. Um, we did not, although we did um, recommend that tapering might be possible, there was not much evidence out there. And here we have a lot of more evidence, but the more tricky part of the more difficult part was the safety part. Although there is a lot of more safety studies coming up now in PSA, the most important question regarding check inhibitor treatment is still very difficult to answer because a safety trial in PSA patients is not there and, it's, and there is no trial running for that. So we had to come up and summarize the evidence on check inhibitor treatment for these patients and then in the end, find a solution how to or how to interpret the results of the safety results, and um, decide on how we would manage the check inhibitor safety signal we investigated in RA. Okay, so we'll, we'll talk about that. So the SLR be published soon, and then the recommendations be published soon. Any idea when? Um, we aim for 2023, so we, we try to finish them. We, we try to publish it this year. This year, okay. So let's talk a little bit about the recommendations um, that came from your presentation of the SLR. Then the whole steering committee and the extended group all voted on uh, any recommendations using a Delphi process. So you had to have quite significant agreement, and then there was voting and re-voting if there wasn't. Um, can you comment a little on um, that process itself when there's disagreement or when people don't see eye to eye on what should be in and what should be out? Because everything was voted on point by point all the way through. Correct. So you started up with suggestions from the steering group suggested to the task force, what is to be changed? If there are no major changes, because there is not much evidence involved, there is the agreement to not I mean, change. New evidence. Nothing if new. There, if there is no new evidence, yeah. then, and if there are no major mistakes made in the past, for example, and there is no strong <laughs> feeling that something should be changed, um, the recommendation stays as it is. And then the, um, the steering group formulates new research, uh, a new um, um, general principles, overarching principles, and also then the recommendations themselves. Then the, they are um, voted on. So each participant of the task force is asked to vote. And if there is a 75% agreement, um, the vote is done and um, the next recommendation follows. If there is a disagreement on that, we work on the, on the formulation and people can contribute how to um, change 
the wording or how to change the recommendation. And then this voting goes on with the lower bar um, to, to hit. So it's then 60%, then it's 50% for the second, for the third vote to be hit that the um, vote goes through and the recommendation is accepted. And when you think about recommendations in Austria and in your own practice, do people pay attention to them, do you think, or is it a lot of work and you end up doing what the regulatory authorities let you do rather than what the recommendations say you should do? And I think it's both. I think the regulators, of course, um, give you give each country a certain direction in the way they you're able to treat your patients. But it actually the recommendations have um, the idea to stimulate the research, the whole community to think about the most important aspects that came up. Um, they are recommendations. They are not guidelines. So it's really about informing the public and informing rheumatologists on what is important and what to pay attention to. But in the end, you get regulators and you need to stick with the with the regulations there in each country separately. But it also drives um, regulators' decisions. If we, for example, say that patients need different treatment, different treatments over their lifetime, and they may, they may need um, a switch of mode of action. Um, this might stimulate regulators to accept that a change in treatment is sometimes necessary for these patients. So it is, I think, both ways. Okay. And I think you made a very important point there. Guidelines have more medical legal implications. Why didn't you stick to the guidelines? Where even though it's just language, the recommendation is a little softer. And so this is what we recommend because you don't always have the evidence to support it, but it's still what the experts in the field recommend. And that is really where a lot of the criticism comes in with guidelines. For example, one of the um, issues that was brought up was the comparison with the ACR guide recommendations and the GRAPA recommendations. And GRAPA is very different. They um, take a domain approach and try to say which drugs have efficacy in each domain. Now you individualize the choice, whereas in the ULA recommendations, a little bit more um, prescriptive, saying you should try this before you try that, even when there isn't evidence there. But there's a very strong thought process and a lot of fine points to justify that decision. So if I go through some of the issues that were raised, Joseph raised a whole series of issues as to why the recommendations should be updated. And it was because it, there were other recommendations out there. There were new indications for old drugs like ubiducitinib had been approved for PSA, tovacitinib, filgotinib, and there are a number of new drugs. Gaselkamab is an example, tildrakizumab, brizankizumab, bimakizumab has recently been approved, the 17A inhibitor. There's a new TIC2 inhibitor since 2019. Um, there's a combo JAK1, TIC2, beprocitinib that has to be thought about, and a number of others, um, isocabep and nikinumab, and a number of new safety issues that were, were raised. So um, if we turn to the recommendations themselves, can you comment on the overarching principles? Do you have the data in front of you? That yes, seems to be increased from six to seven overarching principles. And there were a couple of changes if you want to comment on them. So um, I think... The most important one is now the overarching principle G, um, where we actually put in front that you always should take safety into account. This really relates to the check inhibitor part. So um, safety is actually 
something we're always considering when we made a, a treatment choice. And um, so we thought it's important to include this also in the overarching principles. The other, um, the other changes were minor changes due to some wording issues, but also due to um, some, maybe to, to um, rule out some misunderstandings and include also the importance of patient preferences. I think, uh, and the importance of that obesity might be a very important comorbidity that was actually not mentioned previously um, in the comorbidities that might be associated and should be managed by rheumatologists as well. So excellent. So the first six were basically kept, um, multidisciplinary approach, a shared decision, collaboration um, with specialties, the primary goal of, of treating PSA, um, the musculoskeletal manifestations affect the treatment choice, the comorbidities, and then the safety one was added. Very good. Now there were 11 uh, treatment recommendations. You want to just go through them a little and, and highlight the changes for them? Sure. Um, so um, this treat, the recommendation one was regarding treat to target. That actually stayed pretty much the same. Um, yeah. We do have we do have one trial on that, the TICOPA trial, um, and that showed that intensive treatment towards a certain goal leads to better outcomes. And this is more or less unchanged. We modified, however, um, the recommendation two um, regarding especially systemic glucocorticoids. And actually this task force had very strong opinions that systemic glucocorticoids should be avoided. So we took that out from recommendation two. Um, and we, we did sort of reduce the, um, the size of the recommendation for the steroid injections and NSAIDs a little um, made it more of an adjunctive therapy rather than everybody must go through this step first. Correct. So it's really about um, treating symptoms here, and it's not. Um, it should not actually lead to a prolonged time until the patient receives DMARC treatment, if the diagnosis okay. is clear. Number three. Number three um, is regarding peripheral um, arthritis. Here we actually combined two of the previous recommendations and actually state that conventional synthetic DMARDs should, should be used first with methotrexate being preferred, especially in patients with skin involvement. This is just a combination to simplify um, the previous recommendations. Um, in now recommendation let's talk about that for a sec. Sure. If it wasn't that methotrexate is so cheap and other medications are more expensive, if it's not that we've had 75 years of experience with methotrexate, do you think if those things weren't there, that there is evidence to support using other therapies first off? I think the whole discussion on methotrexate is very difficult to do because we will find not many trials being done in the present and in the future investigating methotrexate treatment against placebo. I think this is mainly due to ethical um, reasons. So as we are already in PSA borrowing a lot of evidence from RA and a lot of the data that is available in PSA suggests that methotrexate is actually effective I think it is important to still include it as a conventional synthetic DMARC and as an important option um, for patients with PSA, especially important 
for less affluent countries, but also important as we have many, many other DMARTs available and the add-on of the conventional synthetic DMART might be in some patients beneficial, although we have no and no strong evidence that in PSA, this is as important as in RA. The combination of conventional synthetic DMARTs and BDMARTs, um, this evidence on that is not very strong. So actually the evidence is standing against it. Um, but and, and in fact, we don't really have trials like we do in um, RA, where we have treatment naive patients starting methotrexate or a 17 inhibitor or a 23 inhibitor to show that there is superior efficacy. So it looks like even though the evidence isn't strong, we're stuck with methotrexate for a while. Correct. And I think it's it's um, feasible because it is common practice in many countries. Okay. So let's talk about the next recommendation, which I um, think, yeah. Here it is. It is about um, the choice of treatment after failure of conventional synthetic DMARC treatment. And here, actually, um, we tried to be very specific on the different um so I think it is important to hear, to separate here um, the biological DMARTs and targeted synthetic DMARTs and also um, non-musculoskeletal um, manifestations, which is also covered in another recommendation. We have some um, new trials available here. So Gizalcumab, um, Risenkizumab um, was not available. We added the new treatment, uh, these new treatments. We added also um, Bimekizumab now. Um, as IL-17 ANF inhibitor and the P19s, of course, as well. And this is also here for the main feature of peripheral arthritis. All BDMARs are put at the same level, so there is no order in the in the choice. The choice comes actually with other musculoskeletal or non-musculoskeletal manifestations which come into place. Okay, so important point that um, you only have to have an adequate response for peripheral arthritis to one conventional synthetic. In our country, despite the absence of evidence, we have to fail two, and it seems to be holding patients up with therapies that don't really have the efficacy before they can get to reimburse therapies that do have efficacy. But as you said, you split them into classes or modes of action, and there was not a separation based on efficacy between them, and it was the decision based on other elements. So let's turn to five, which talks about peripheral arthritis and the JAK inhibitors in particular. I can recall that a lot of um, uh, people wanted to really put the JAK inhibitors well down the list, particularly as in the FDA after TNFs have failed, but really. We like to weigh risk and benefit, be cognizant of safety issues, and where other therapies aren't appropriate, we like to be able to have a choice taking all those safety concerns into consideration. So what was recommendation five? So here it is. This is the, the main, rec main recommendation or the change to this recommendation is that safety considerations should be taken into account, not only by choosing a jack, but by choosing every biological DMARC. But with the JAGs, um, here the list was added. And um, this is regarding the risk factors we actually all maybe know of. So older patients with cardiovascular risk factors or a history of thrombosis or malignancy should be actually not preferred to give them a JAG inhibitor. 
to yeah. take another. But day. again, they gave rheumatologists some wriggle room. If the others weren't appropriate, and you could take the safety considerations into account, there was still a place there for them. Uh, for example, monotherapy. There's evidence that, particularly in RA, but also PSA, that that's an important space. And the JAK inhibitors for those people that have failed everything or are in trouble or can't take needles or can't take this, that, or the other. It's left some room for prescription, provided it's the appropriate choice and provided safety is taken into account. And we just chose the EMA um, guidance on those safety considerations um, for safety point of view, which I think is really quite a, um, a healthy way to consider how people should use JACs in this particular setting. Because like it or not, oral surveillance was one jack and the whole class has been black boxed, was in one group, RA, with much higher risks in many areas. Um, but the whole, every disease was black boxed. Let's talk about the next consideration, recommendation six, about a premolast and peripheral arthritis. Correct. There was a, there was a lot of a lot of discussion on the premolast if it should still be kept in actually um, because it, it was quite um, prominent having an own recommendation by itself um, in the end um, it this recommendation was just left as it is because there was no major change in the evidence available so we left it as it is but Which with is the really whole task force agreed that is not an important um, choice of drug um, regarding um, so especially in displacement so the evidence available um, was actually that there was no much, there was not much change in the evidence, but there was a lot of discussion on this recommendation because many in the task force felt that it might not be that important to keep a premolist where it is in this recommendation. But we um, nevertheless, as we saw that there was no upcoming new evidence, we just left it unchanged. Yeah, so it's for milder disease, then it response to one CSD mark. And then with the others who are appropriate, you could consider it. And it, it definitely has a role of those uh, people with mild disease sure. as an adjunctive therapy, as a therapy for people recovering from a serious adverse event, therapy for frailer, older people, because it has a very strong safety record and moderate efficacy for its expense. Recommendation, recommendation seven was enthesial disease. Can you want to comment on that one? Um, so we actually have quite convincing data that all the um, new and old biological DMARDs and targeted synthetic DMARDs do have um, a very favorable efficacy in enthesial disease, and we do not see any difference between the different modes of actions in the efficacy on enthesial disease. But for recommendation eight, um, we do have new evidence, and this is dealing with um, actual disease. And here um, we now have the first, the Maximize study was the first study that actually looked at actual disease in patients with PSA. And it compared, um, uh, it, it was the first study that actually looked at secukinumab treatment. And this is what the reason why patients here um, should, here there is an order. Now interleukin 17A inhibitors are coming first, TNF and IL-17AF or JAK are coming after it. So we made an order here that um, the reason is because we now do have direct evidence in PSA actual disease that IL-17A inhibition okay. works. 
So I think the recent surpassed study publication, which looked at an alumumab biosimilar versus secukinumab, was very important study, head-to-head, -head, powered, and really showed identical speed of onset of action, identical depth of response, identical persistence of response over time, identical response on X-ray um, progression, um, we'll see some of the uh, more post hoc data being presented at uh, ACR probably. But I think it speaks to that class being an alternate first-line choice to TNFs based particularly on the SIPAR study recently published. There is evidence, as you say, for ANF inhibition against placebo being very effective and also JAK inhibition, um, particularly upacitinib, but also some tobacitinib data um, against placebo. Recommendation nine. Now, recommendation nine is completely new. So um, here we now focused on different non-musculoskeletal manifestations that are related to PSA, which might occur in PSA patients. And then um, really, and here there is actually no order in the um, in the different drugs of choice, but patient with skin involvement should preferentially receive an IL-7 with relevant skin involvement should receive an IL-17A or AF or IL-23 or 1223 inhibitor. In patients with uveitis, patients should only receive an anti-TNF monoclonal antibody because there is no evidence that, um, in, on, there is only evidence on TNF monoclonal antibodies to be effective in uveitis. And the same is true for IBD, um, where the monoclonal antibody um, is only effective. The same for IL-23 inhibition or um, use the kinemab as well as the check inhibition for patients with IBD. So here we now um, kind of took um, the non-musculoskeletal manifestations into account if a patient has some of them or one of them. Um, and again, it's an important individualization of therapy. So you have choices up above, but the minute you throw in a history of IBD or a history of uveitis, or relevant severe skin involvement, then the task force has recommended um, some therapies of choice in that clinical situation. Um, what about number 11? No, number 10, sorry. Number 10 is actually about um, switches, um, including switches within a class if patients do not respond adequately to a certain um, mode of action. Here, there was actually... The, the evidence, there was a lot of more evidence generated that switches are possible. Um, it is possible to switch um, from a biological DMARD um, to another mode of action, um, or, but there is, it is very difficult to say um, if there is any superiority of any switch to another. So um, this is really left open for the rheumatologist as a choice. Um, we did not look into biosimilar studies because um, all the biosimilar studies that we that were looked into into the past did not show that any biosimilar um, is different than the bio-originator in regards to efficacy and safety. Perfect. 11. This is about tapering. Um, here we yeah. do have a lot of um, promising evidence that tapering is possible in PSA patients, especially patients that are in long-term remission. Although um, I think this is critical, patients need to be, um, should be tapered slowly and not treatment should not be stopped immediately, but treatment should be there. I think the, the term 
taper to target is actually adequate. So you taper treatment, you um, follow up the patient, patient should stay in remission, then you can taper on um, with the potential to maybe discontinue therapy. But we know that many patients might flare. However, a lot of patients, 30 to 50% are able to continue um, their life without any conventional or biological DMARD subscribed um, without a flare. So um, there is always the, you cannot you look at tapering studies always as the glass half full or half empty. And there are always a certain amount of patients who do not flare and do not receive any therapy. And I think this is the way tapering studies should be interpreted. Okay, so plenty of room for more research, quite a big research agenda. And the fine text is just as fine print is just as important as the recommendations because it explains the reasoning behind some of those things. So if we had to summarize, um, we could say that there's an increased focus on treat to target, aiming for remission or LDA. Systemic steroids were not recommended. NSAIDs and injections were limited to a short period of time. Um, BDMARD after CSDMARD, at least one. Um, with no ordering in choice of BDMARD. <clears throat> the JAKs after that, unless the BDMARD is inappropriate. Primalast milder disease. There's a focus on enthesitis. Um, there's a focus on axial disease. And the ordering of therapy is based on considerations of extra musculoskeletal disease and a strong focus on safety. So thank you very much for that highlight. Do you want to have any concluding take-home type messages for uh, the rheumatologist based on the guidelines? Sorry, I based on the recommendations. <laughs> I think um, regarding the recommendations, it is important to not just look at the flowchart and the table with the summarization of the um, general principles or overarching principles and recommendations, but it is important to also read the text because the text actually um, highlights the small details that are very important and were discussed. I think this is what I um, would recommend to really read the whole text um, and go through the evidence in that way. Okay, so excellent. Thank you very much for your time. Again, Andreas, greatly appreciate it. We also appreciate how much hard work went into that SLR and we're looking forward to the publication sometime this year. If you'd like to know more about the PSA recommendations discussed today, head over to the ULI website. Please subscribe to this podcast on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast media and let us know what you think. We're always open to some feedback. You can access three detailed slide summaries and more on the latest in rheumatology over at the CSF website, cytokinesignaling.com. Thanks so much, Andreas, and uh, all the best to you and hope you uh, to see you in San Diego ICR. Yes, thank you so much. Excellent, thank you.